Monogamy is a hell of a hierarchy. There can be only one. Is one freaking hell of a hierarchy right there. And it's not just in the relationship escalator that you only have one partner. It is that that relationship is intrinsically supposed to outweigh almost every other uh, a non-care-based relationship that you have. If you're happy with the same old ways of dating, if you enjoy sucking at communication, and you have no desire to improve your romantic life, then our podcast might not be for you. But if you want some out-of-the-box ideas to deepen your current relationships, broaden your sexual horizons, develop a better understanding of yourself, or learn more about non-monogamy, then you've come to the right place. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. And this is the Multiamory Podcast. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking with Amy Guerin, a.k.a. Aggie Says. Amy is a longtime journalist and the author of the book Stepping Off the Relationship Escalator, Uncommon Love and Life. Stepping Off the Relationship Escalator is a research-based exploration of the social norms for how most people assume intimate relationships are supposed to work, as well as the many ways that people are stepping off the escalator to live and love on their own terms. Uh, Amy also identifies as solo, solo poly, and for several years she wrote solopoly.net, under the name Aggie Says. So in case you were curious about, wait, I thought, what? They are the same person, one and the same, Amy Guerin and Aggie Says. Um, And she also um, created and for several years was the moderator of the largest solo polyamory Facebook group online. Um, And we had a really fun time talking with her about all this stuff. We got pretty deep into some philosophical things as well as some sort of uh, you know, economic things and all sorts of stuff. So I'm excited to share this interview with all of you. I appreciate her outspokenness. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Totally. And her years of experience looking into all of this and researching it is awesome. So with that, let's get to the interview. All right, Amy, thank you so much for being here. Hi, glad to be here. I've been a fan of the show for quite a while. It's nice to finally talk to y'all. Well, we've been a fan of you so much. Jeez. (laughs) Awesome. And for our listeners out there who may just be coming to the show initially and not know what the concept of the relationship escalator is, can we just talk about that a little bit? What is that? What does that mean to you? And why is it important to step off of it? Thanks. Um, Yeah, that's a really great question, actually. The whole reason I did this particular book this way is... um, the kind of meet the the need of yo fish there's this thing called water you might want to think about it <laughs> and um, because social norms the the reason why we have any social norms is that they exist as a kind of grammar for how people interact so you don't have to think so hard from scratch with every interaction that you have and it takes a lot of the friction out of any kind of interpersonal interaction and some social norms get really multi-layered and involved and laden with lots of meaning. And they kind of, you know, congeal into these lumps, if you will, of, of social meaning. And one of those lumps of social meaning is around uh, relationships that involve significant emotional or, or physical intimacy. And um, it, it, to the extent that relationships that follow this, you know, certain package of norms are what is defined as a relationship. You know, um, a lot of times when you say that little code phrase, a relationship, everybody knows what it means. And there's all this um, uh, built-in infrastructure for how you talk about it and uh, how you're supposed to interact with these people and what that's supposed to mean with society and housing and finances and all sorts of things. Um, So it it really is uh, the relationship escalator is the bundle of norms for how sexually or emotionally intimate relationships are supposed to happen between adults. And uh, it it includes things such as um, they're supposed to be monogamous, sexually and romantically exclusive between two and only two people. Uh, they are, are supposed to uh, involve significant life entwinement 
um, you know, usually that means living together, but also um, merging identity. Often when people start to think of themselves as a couple, um, that means they I, merge their identity uh, to a certain extent. And uh, that it's supposed to be always and forever. So, you know, really the only way that you know if you've done a relationship right is when somebody dies. Um, you know, there are all these implicit um, aspects, and it's called the relationship escalator because everybody's supposed to know that there are a certain set of progressive steps that lead up to this goal of a permanently exclusive, cohabitating, socially venerated relationship. And that starts with, you know, you meet someone, you think they're hot, you start dating, mm-hmm. um, you start having sex, you fall in love, you stop dating other people, you move in together, and then marriage, kids, death, you part. And it feels like an escalator because of this um, background of social norms. Everybody knows it's supposed to work, so it seems simpler. It seems like it has its own momentum. And that's because it is so familiar and socially reinforced. It's not the only way relationships work, but it can seem a lot more natural and easier because it's what we've all grown up soaking in, marinating in, that this is the way it's supposed to work. It can be very difficult to conceive of relationships differently uh, for a lot of people, and it can be um, daunting to try to do relationships differently because you're not only fighting all this external uh, norms and expectations and forces, but all the um, norms and expectations that exist inside your head. You know, the the hardest... um, uh, conditioning to undo is not what's outside of you, but what's inside of you. So it, that's why it's the relationship escalator and not the relationship staircase. It can feel like you're getting right. carried along. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Yeah, I feel like we're so used to, in movies and TV and in books and even in our own lives, I think we're so used to encountering you know that conversation where it's, uh, well, where's this relationship going? Yeah, what what is it we? we're doing? <laughs> You know, like, what are we, you know, kind of implying, like, we got to get on this, this escalator, right? right? And if we're not on the escalator, then where are we going? What are we doing? Because there's only one direction for us to be going. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, it's interesting, because um, a lot of people just do it automatically. um, But that doesn't mean it's wrong. The escalator is a great choice. It works really, really well for not lots of people. But it is an option, and um, it helps when choosing something that's so valuable to most people's lives to know what your options are and to be making these decisions consciously. Um, that tends to yield better relationships, even for people who consider themselves uh, you know, strictly monogamous. And th- that's a big reason why I did this book, is to let people know you got options, and here's what those options look like from the experience of the people who are doing them. I have 1,500 co-authors. <laughs> I did a mm-hmm. survey. I'm a journalist, and you know my background is, all right, I want to do something. I'll ask a bunch of people about it. So I did a survey about unconventional relationships, um, and a total of 1,500 people responded. I was absolutely floored by that response, wow. especially because um, people were writing the equivalent of about 2,000, 2,500 word essays in their surveys. Wow. Uh, I learned a lot about parsing qualitative data, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I'd imagine. I'd imagine. But it was, well, you but it was worthwhile. T- and I, o- over 300 people are quoted in this book. And I've got uh, two other books coming out because um, everything on the cuttering room floor is my factory floor. So I'm going to be using everything. Of course. Yeah. Of course, of course. Well, you mentioned specifically about you know, also introducing this to people who are strictly monogamous. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great segue for Jace, for you to share your story with that. Yeah, exactly. So um, something that, I mean, we've talked about the relationship escalator a lot on this show um, and just that concept of kind of realizing, becoming aware that this is a thing we do and that it isn't just a natural thing that happens all by itself, that it is a choice we make. We just kind of take it for granted um, that that's, you know, it's been hugely helpful, I think, in all of our lives and kind of realizing this. When we were first introduced to the concept, maybe a few years ago is when I first started coming across this online. And you mentioned that about writing this book so that it's a resource for monogamous people as well. And I wanted to bring that up, uh, not so much just as a question all by itself, but something that I would love us to keep in mind as we have this discussion today. Uh, And that's that Um, 
a lot of the resources out there about the relationship escalator are all, if they're not specifically about polyamory or some kind of non-monogamy, they're sort of surrounded by it, right? They're on those types of blogs or, um, you know, on podcasts like ours. Uh, but I did just want to mention that because I think that's such a useful thing to have a resource out there for monogamous people to be aware of this. Um, and I think your book's a great example of that. And I'd also love uh, for this episode to be a place where people could start as a way to get their feet wet, and then they could move on to reading your book and looking for other blog posts. Um, because I had an experience a couple years ago of uh, talking to my brother who was trying to make a difficult decision about moving in with his girlfriend versus not, and kind of what their financial situations were and, you know, that it couldn't be temporary and all of these things. And I told him about the relationship escalator and he thought that was, you know, really interesting. He's like, wow, I'd never thought about that. That's cool. Do you know of any resources for it? Um, and I was like, yeah, you know, just like Google it and look it up. There's definitely some good posts out there and blogs. And he came back a week later saying, yeah, I tried looking that up, but all of the blogs were polyamory blogs and had a lot of that talk in them. And I didn't feel like that was something I could bring to my monogamous girlfriend and have her feel comfortable with me bringing this resource to her. Um, mm -hmm. So anyway, I do really appreciate your book for for trying to you know fill in some of that gap as well. And I hope that we can all work together to get even more of that. Uh, yeah, you're hitting on a very important point there, um, stigma. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you know there are a number of um, uh, hallmarks that uh, establish what an escalator relationship is and. Definitely, the 800-pound gorilla is monogamy. Uh, there is mm. so much stigma in this society against any relationships that don't involve monogamy, and that there are a variety of reasons for that. Um, but what if it was a, a blog for people who prefer to not live with partners, regardless of the types of relationships they have? Do you think your brother might have had that same reaction? Probably not as much. Yeah. Yeah, because mm. the idea I, of not be not necessarily living with a partner is not nearly as stigmatized, at least in Western societies, as as much as non-monogamy is. As well, not yeah. just non-monogamy, as much as consensual non-monogamy is, because non-consensual non-monogamy is extremely conventional. If right. somebody hears mm. that somebody's cheating, uh, they may be hurt, they may be appalled, whatever. They won't be confused. They'll know what's going on. Mm. Consensual non-monogamy, it's like taking the force of gravity away. People just don't know how that'll function, and it scares the shit out of people. So um, that's why I wanted to start in less scary territory, to, to kind of do the whole, yo, fish, there's this thing called water, and explain the concept of the relationship escalator. But it, it's odd. It's kind of stigma to that, too. I found that um, some people react really negatively to the concept that there is an escalator because they're like, well, that's just relationships, right? Mm -hmm. And other things, they're not really relationships, right? It's like, okay, let's think about that, shall we? Mm. Right. But yeah. no, that relation, that that argument that you talk about, that's exactly why I did it. I used to do a blog called solopoly.net about being solo polyamorous. And um, I had a post on there called uh, Riding the Relationship Escalator or Not. And um, when I put that, just because I was doing so many definitional things in this blog, and I kept saying this relationship escalator thing, it's like, well, I should explain what I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. So I wrote up a, a post about it. Wham! I have never gotten so much traffic to anything in my life, and it was being linked to all over the place, including from a lot of mainstream, mainstream media, um, you know, for academic publications, um, you know, the regular relationship, like, you know, uh, quote unquote, normal relationship blogs and podcasts. <laughs> and the traffic is, I'm looking at that, being a self-employed journalist, I'm like, hmm, that looks huh. like a market opportunity. <laughs> and it, it wow. turns out it has been because there aren't a lot of, of uh, publications addressing um, a mainstream audience that's that show people that they have options and not just non-monogamy my book covers a whole lot of options uh, there are lots of ways that people step off that escalator but definitely consensual non-monogamy that's the part that freaks people out right yeah. right definitely well I think that's actually a good transition um, within you know under the umbrella term of consensual non-monogamy I wanted to talk to you specifically more about 
solo polyamory. Um, and you did mention how, you know, you, you wrote, uh, you know, the blog solopoly.net for so long. Um, and I feel like my perception of, you know, when I tap into the online polyamory space and into communities, I feel like solo polyamory often comes up as, as a topic of discussion of people kind of arguing about what it actually means, who actually is solo poly, am I solo poly enough? Are you not solo poly? Am I going to try to do some gatekeeping on whether you're solo poly or not? Things like that. Um, so I'm going to start out by including a quote from your book um, where you said, solohood does not hinge upon relationship status. Um, and then to skip ahead a little bit further, uh, you say that it needs not preclude consideration of others, making commitments to others, or putting others first in certain situations. Mm -hmm. um, so I really like that you bring that foundation to it. And I know, um, you know, Tristan Tarmino, who wrote Opening Up, um, I think, you know, she claims that she created the term solo polyamory. I haven't fact-checked whether that's true or not. And she kind of uses the definition that uh, it's just polyamory for people who aren't looking for a primary, um, which I think personally is a little bit reductive. And I think there's a lot of nuance that gets lost in there. So could you fill in for our listeners, what's your personal definition of solo polyamory and what that means to you? Um, yeah, there are a lot of definitions, and I'm not trying to tell anybody else um, whether they do or don't fall into this. I'm not trying to take away anybody's solo poly card, basically. <laughs> but I do think there are some important considerations. So for me, um, being solo poly means I choose to not... Um, uh, combine the infrastructure of my life with any intimate partners. I've, uh, I, I don't live with partners. I don't uh, share finances with them. I have a housemate. He's great, you know, but he's a housemate. Um, and um, I, for, for me, a big reason for that is I need my own mental and emotional space. And also, um, I make better decisions in relationships when I'm not worrying about whether my housing, my finances, or my sense of identity would fall apart if that relationship were to end. Um, I've, I've been there. I was married for a long time. And uh, when I got divorced, even though it was like the easiest, the most amicable divorce ever, man, that was wrenching. It tore my whole life apart. And it took me a few years to put that back together. Um, I operate better you know, this way, even if I were choosing to be monogamous, which I kind of suck at, so I won't. But, <laughs> um, but here's the thing, though, um, that is an important thing to consider. There are some people who say, well, I value my, my autonomy, and I don't um, hinge my identity on my partner, and, and we operate fairly independently, and we, we uh, may even, you know, not practice hierarchy in, in our relationship. So that means I'm solo poly. It's like, it could mean that, but there's an important difference. And it comes back to those social norms. There's this thing called couple privilege. And that means that people who appear to be in an escalator style relationship, even if they are not checking all those escalator boxes, but especially cohabiting, is, it seems to be the big one, will um, accrue social couple privilege. People will treat them in ways that, um, that often reflect a, a higher status of um, you know, respectability, recognition, you know, et cetera. And um, there are factors that can mitigate that, but it definitely means that people who choose not to nest with their partners face a very different logistical and dating and social playing field than people who do. And I'm not saying mm. that's fair. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. And I'm not saying that people who are nesting can't be solo poly, but I am saying they face a very different set of circumstances. Yeah, I think yeah, that's definitely. a great point to bring up and i feel like uh, just that idea of cohabiting or not um is like that is a pretty wide divide and it's it's interesting because for dedeker and myself we both tend to identify as solo poly but live together for part of the year sometimes and other times we'll be in different countries from each other for months at a time so it's this <laughs> it's interesting seeing the difference between how people treat me during times when I'm living with her and when I'm not, especially if it's someone new that I've met who doesn't know the situation yet. Um, mm. So yeah, it's definitely true that there is What kind is of a, differences do you see? Um, it's, well, okay. One thing is, I would say, even if they're people who are somewhat aware of non-monogamy or polyamory, 
uh, if I'm living together, it's always assumed that we have a hierarchy and that she's primary and that there's probably some other stipulations and rules and things that go along with that. Um, exactly. That's definitely a big one. But for people who are not, I mean, there's for, for people who are more sort of traditionally monogamously minded, the fact that we're living together comes with it. The assumption that we're going to want to have kids and that we're want to get married. Uh, which there's is, that escalator. <laughs> yeah. Um, I get that one a lot. Um, mm-hmm even in like negotiating a contract at my current job, like that came up um, because they knew about her and that she and I had been traveling together of kind of like, well, thinking they could use that as a bargaining chip against me of like, well, you know, you're going to want some stability in this position because of, you know, when you have what? kids. And, what? You didn't tell me that. That's really, that's real. sorry, that just strikes me as really funny that they're using me as the bargaining chip to get you to stay in one place. Yeah. That is the bad move on their part. This is not the first time <laughs> jokes, I've heard that, Jokes the on them. Yeah, really? Yeah, <laughs> really? I mean, it doesn't surprise yeah. me. <clears throat> yeah. I Can I, sorry, Jason, mm-hmm. are, are you yeah, finished? Go ahead. I kind of wanted to jump in on that. Because uh, I feel like I, to talk about the other side of it is that the times when I'm not living with Jace, because I also, like sometimes I live with other partners during the year, but sometimes I'm also by myself like I am right now. Um, that it's really funny to me how quickly people will go to, if it's someone new, like uh, people will go to assuming that, you know, if I'm not living with a partner, then must mean the relationship's not that serious um, Mm -hmm. or could be kind of disregarded. Or people will will go to like, is everything okay with you and Jace? Um, (laughs) Like, you're not living together anymore. Is everything okay? Are you okay? Like, what's going on? You can talk about it. I'm like, yeah, we're okay, whatever. This is only like the sixth time that we've, moved in together and then moved out together like in the past two years like whatever it's fine mm-hmm. you know um, yeah it's but yeah that change definitely comes it's up. a very weighty benchmark and that's why being solo poly is a twofer on freaking people out because it hits mm-hmm. on the two biggest and heaviest uh hallmarks of escalator relationships monogamy the exclusivity and merging and uh yeah so i freak a lot of people out but i'm used to that <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you, uh, Jace mentioned a little bit about hierarchy. Amy, you mentioned hierarchy a little mm-hmm. bit too. Um, on this show, we've talked a lot about specifically the ethics of hierarchy and of rules and of power imbalances in relationships. Um, we generally tend to take a fairly anti-prescriptive hierarchy stance on this show um, and really encourage people to, again, always be examining the ethics of the ethics and the power dynamics of anything that they're taking part in in their relationships and how that plays out for everyone else that they're connected to in their lives. So, however, in my coaching practice, when I work with clients, you know, I get a lot of clients who maybe have listened to the show a lot. They've done a lot of reading up on polyamory and ethical non-monogamy and they want to be egalitarian, but they find it difficult because they're opening up their relationship with their you know, spouse and co-parent of 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. Um, and I was wondering, do you have practical tips for people who are in these kind of long established relationships who want to kind of like de-primary or de-hierarchy without abandoning or downgrading their standing relationship? Oh, that's a great question. You really opened up a can of worms there. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Um, So, uh, first of all, hierarchy is not just about non-monogamy. It is a social norm that is very much a part of the relationship escalator. I mean, one of the great things about um, doing this research and asking people about what makes their relationship unconventional is that you get kind of the flip side of that um, to see what exactly those conventions are. Where are the lines that people step around? And when you think about it, monogamy is a hell of a hierarchy. There can be only one. Is one freaking hell of a hierarchy right there. And it's not just in the relationship escalator that you only have one partner. It is that that relationship is intrinsically supposed to outweigh almost every other a, a non-care-based relationship that you have. Um, so, you know, friends, other adult family members, things like that. In most Western cultures, at least, um, your escalator partner is supposed to be the one that takes the cake above all of them. And, um, you know, that makes for some um, sticky situations. Like, what if um, you're in a monogamous relationship, but you have a very close friend that you have commitments to, and you decide that you want to live with your friend for a couple of years? Most people would think, what's wrong with you? 
But, you know, that's that would be a choice that would be a valid choice if you did not consider hierarchy to be an, a crucial part of your relationship. Now, so that's putting it in the frame of that's something that everybody could relate to. Now, in the context of polyamory, you also have um, sexually and or romantically intimate relationships. Um, um, there's that issue of, um, of, you mentioned descriptive hierarchy. I actually quibble with that term quite a bit uh, mm. because um, it seems to me that that's a term, and I talk to people a lot about this, that means a lot more for people who would be on top of the hierarchy than in other positions. Mm. Somebody who's mm -hmm. not necessarily yes. on top yes. of the hierarchy might experience exactly the same constraints, limitations, um, effects, yes. Um, as, as somebody in a prescriptive hierarchy. So I, th I think that that definite, that dis you know, differentiation is debatable. Um, I do love, I, I do, I just wanted to hop in just to say, I do love that something you did point out from your research is that usually the people who are arguing for hierarchy or arguing about its benefits are the people who are benefiting from it. So usually the, the usually it's the primary partner who's the one who's talking about how hierarchy is a really helpful, useful yeah. thing. But benefit yeah. is an important yeah. point because there are many people, including many solo poly people, who are fine with hierarchy, who are fine with saying, hey, I like being a secondary partner. I like not having this level of responsibility or expectations. It works great for them. Totally cool. All of this stuff is optional. Um, now, but the th issue with the ethics is, um, is it okay for somebody to effectively control a relationship in which they are not a partner. That's, that's a core consideration and there are a variety of perspectives on that. Um, and uh, also a, an issue with hierarchy is how um, accurately and fully people disclose their hierarchy and how it can affect people. Uh, there's this thing called sneakyarchy and it happens <laughs> a lot. I've got the tire tracks mm -hmm. all over my back here from it. You, you know, some of you <laughs> might have it as well. Sneakyarchy mm -hmm. is when um, people don't necessarily uh, disclose or realize how hierarchical they are, how they practice hierarchy, when and how it might kick in, and how it might affect other people. And um, it, it can sneak up on anybody. Um, a lot of people, especially people who are poly, um, you know, prefer to think that they are far more egalitarian than they might actually be. Um, and especially when people are new to polyamory and they are used to having so much weight and meaning on this escalator relationship. And it's really hard to wrap your head around the fact that, all right, I'm not on this escalator anymore, but maybe really because holding onto the handrails of the escalator make me feel safe, but no, I'm not there. There's right. a lot of tension and you've probably seen people really wrestling with that. And, um, it can take a lot of time and especially a lot of experience to figure out where you are on the hierarchy spectrum. Hierarchy is not necessarily intrinsically unethical, but it does require consent, which means it requires disclosure, and which means it requires negotiation. Um, and if you're not having very clear conversations about hierarchy, especially if you're coming from a position that has that 800 pound gorilla of the relationship escalator on your back and in your head and in everybody else's head, it can be really hard to undo it. So some ways that people undo that is uh, to make sure uh, that they have frequent discussions about um, are we, uh, even there, the we word, you know, a lot of people mm -hmm. go, we, 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 mm -hmm. we, we, um, uh, am I, allowing any forces other than um, what my partner and I want to do affect our relationship. Of course, there are going to be some ripple effects. It's not, never, we don't live in vacuums. But um, if you say, um, we don't do hierarchy, but I'm just going to check in with my partner about this to see if they're okay with what I'm doing with you, you know, uh, maybe that's hierarchy, maybe it's not. I actually started making some sneakyarchy bingo cards uh, because, <laughs> because there are things that are not necessarily unethical or problematic um, individually, but if a pattern of them accumulates over time, if you check off enough things on the bingo card, yeah, there might be some sneakyarchy happening there. And um, mm. can you give us some examples of stuff that's on that bingo card? Oh well, that one of them was uh, 
I just need to check in with my partner about uh, that. That's one. Or or we have a boundary that, mm. Um, mm. you know, mm-hmm. or just just in capital letters, we, you know, that's if you mm. hear that a lot rather than and, and, and if you know that you're not part of that, we. Um, yeah, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so um, mm-hmm. so it's uh, hierarchy. And tr- it all I can say is declare your intention that you want your relationships to be able to grow and develop and find their own level without necessarily being constrained by other existing relationships and do your best to try to find an equilibrium and be fair to people the best you can and be honest with people and accept that you're going to fuck it up and and you're going to hurt people and other people are going to hurt you and just keep getting back up and say, I, I learned from that. Let me try to do this better because these social norms are deep. And I have never seen, I've been poly for a friggin' long time. Okay. I mean, all my life for the last 25 years, however you want to count. And uh, I've never seen anybody pull, pull that off. Coming from an existing escalator relationship, I've never seen them pull it off perfectly from the bat. So you're going to fuck it up and just declare your intention and tell people you're dealing with, I'm going to fuck this up somehow. Please call me on that and accept it when they do. Mm. Uh, and, right. and also, um, don't expect that um, it is okay to suddenly implement hierarchy as soon as somebody gets insecure. Um, if you need to change the terms of the relationship, own it, but expect that if you, you were talking the talk of being not hierarchical and then all of a sudden it comes crashing down, people are going to be upset Mm -hmm. and they have a right to Mm -hmm. be upset because they, they had a right to consent to the kind of relationship that they're in. Right. Does that help? <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Very much. It's a place to start from. Okay. It's a place to start from for sure. Yeah, it's I was just going to say I think it's really interesting that that theme of kind of accepting that you're going to fuck it up comes up because just a few episodes ago, uh we had Andrew Gerza on the show to talk about uh sex and dating people with disabilities and mm. he said almost exactly the same thing of like when he goes into any kind of sexual encounter with someone is just like starting from the premise of like, I know you're going to fuck up somehow and you're going to say something that's going to be offensive. Let's just understand that's going to happen and we'll get through it. Um, So that's, Mm -hmm. that is really interesting. Yeah. And it helps, it helps to kind of let partners know that you don't quite know what you're doing yet. Mm -hmm. And until you have a fair amount of experience, you won't Um, because especially if they're new to polyamory and you're new to polyamory, um, they might defer to you because of couple privilege because they think oh well that's how polyamory works right it's couple plus something and i should pay attention to them and take my cues off of them and because they know what they're doing not necessarily for a long time now we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories things like that it's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping code M-U-L-T-I. Well, let's switch gears a little okay. bit. Um, I, I know that you had a question for us, actually, before <laughs> this interview even started about um, social norms and how they're different between generations. 
Well, they evolve. I mean, they're a constantly evolving process. And um, for instance, monogamy never felt like a great fit to me. Uh, and even though I was a child of the 70s, I'm 51 years old, so I'm probably a fair amount older than, than all of you. But um, I always found that most of my peers, even while I we was growing up, were very monogamy minded. And indeed, I, I attempted to do monogamy for a long time because I thought that was my only option if I wanted to have a relationship with any depth. And uh, so I was used to being the oddball about that. But I have a lot of friends of all ages, and uh, my local poly community, uh, the Boulder Polyamory Meetup, which is awesome, is mostly people in their 20s and 30s. And um, it seems like they have fewer expectations of, um, they've, they've grown up with fewer expectations, not so much of monogamy, but of the other hallmarks that make up the relationship escalator. Um, that you might move with people, move in with somebody, but not have it be always and forever, and that you can move apart and have it not be, you know, a, a relationship ending event. Um, or that um, you can have important relationships that kind of come and go in your life. And it doesn't mean that they disappear between the gaps. Uh, or that um, a, a, an increased understanding and respect for um, intimacy that is not necessarily sexual or romantic in, in nature. Asexuality and aromanticism are a thing, and they matter uh, very much. And depths of friendships, um, I've seen, you know, for non-sexual, non-romantic non relationships, I've seen people in their 20s and 30s seem more open to that and willing to invest in that than I have seen among people in my age range. Um, so I was just, like I said, I've always been the oddball. I've never really known what's normal, which is why I actually have to ask people what's normal. <laughs> what's normal for you guys? Gosh, who starts? Emily, you want to start? I, I guess I would like to think that maybe it's a generational thing or maybe it's just because the three of us are specifically really steeped in the non-monogamy community but that the transitions that you've talked about in your book and, and otherwise um, can happen between being in a romantic relationship and then going to a more friendship-based relationship and that that can still be a really meaningful and fulfilling type of relationship in one's life. Because I definitely still have friends out there who say, you know, well, I, the, I broke up with that person. I never want to see them again and I never want to hear from them again. But, I mean, the two people in this podcast with me are testament to the fact that I can date someone for a long period of time and not be sexually active with them and still care deeply about them. And I think that that is maybe different than it once was. I don't know. Because, Do you think you that's, know, that's accepted by other people, that they accept that you're still close to, these, to your former partners? I mean, <laughs> I think it 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 is. Uh, I don't know. That's it. We're a both good shaking point. our heads. No, We're I, like, I, no. I know you no, are. Like, <laughs> I know the, you are. The same. The same. The same way that people ask me, like, is everything okay with you and Jace? Like, if we're not living together, mm -hmm. like, I still get questions of like, is it really weird to be around Emily? And <laughs> like, is it? Is it like, oh, you're still recording the podcast? Oh gosh, that must be hard. Huh? Interesting. Um, interesting. No, like, I still get that all the time. Well, yeah, uh, yeah I know for myself. The um, most significant relationship of my life is with uh, somebody that I used to be married to, and our relationship got so much better after we got unmarried. You know, mm -hmm, and yeah. uh, he's one of the most valuable people in my life. But everybody, uh, you know, still says, "Oh, it's so great that you're on good terms with your ex." It's like I only <laughs> ex people when I want them out of my life. He's not my ex. Yeah. We used to be married. You know, we're, we're friends and we're very close friends and we count on each other for a lot of things. Um, that freaks people out all the time. Even people <laughs> who have known me for decades still don't freaking get that. It kind of pisses me off. Well, that, to even happen? use that terminology. Uh, well, yeah, just yeah. to say like the word X as opposed to like this person that I care about who is my friend in context it, it means a different thing. I mean, an X generally has and does mean like I'm they're out of your life 100% yeah. and I don't talk to them anymore I don't think about them anymore and obviously you know that is not the case even though that is the case as well I mean they are potentially my exes yes that is a true thing but they're also people who I who I you know care about hugely 
and, and another thing I've noticed that's more norm with my generation that might be less with your generation is um, you tell me what you think. Um, acceptance that a relationship that was never sexual or romantic in nature can be very important and potentially to the point of being a life partner uh, with somebody. Mm. Um, a lot of people in, in my generation have a hard time conceiving of that and they assume that anything you invest in that kind of relationship will be lost as, somebody, as soon as somebody gets a real relationship um, that you can't expect them to actually stick around once they have an intimate partner. Um, and again, not the case. My other core uh, life partner <laughs> is is a woman who's one of my very dearest friends, and we have never been lovers. I'm straight, not for lack of trying, but I'm straight, you know, <laughs> and she's awesome. But, you know, we take a bullet for each other, and that's not going to change. But what about for you, though, um, the, the relationships with people that have never been sexual or romantic? Do you think they get as much... Um, respect and and trust and validation and recognition as non-sexual relationships. Gosh, I mean, I'd I, I like it, it is so. it is it is so hard. I think even for the three of us, again, to have a sense of what's normal, because again, all three of us are also so steeped and have been steeped for so many years now, also um, in these alternative communities where a lot of people our same age are talking about these things, like you know, like the relationship escalator, like the non-sexual, non-romantic. Uh, people that they have in their life that maybe they want to co-parent with or live with or whatever. Um, so I, I think I have a hard time getting a sense of whether or not that's the case. I feel like, you know, the places that I get to dip it, kind of <laughs> step outside of that community and that bubble, as it were, is actually often with my own client base because I do still get a lot of people who are either in still fairly traditional relationships or hold some traditional values about relationships. I think the thing that stands out most to me for our generation is that, yes, on the one hand, I think we've internalized that it is okay to not jump into the monogamy marriage kids track, like it is okay to not do that or to delay that or whatever. However, I think rather than embracing the idea that there's so many other options than marriage and monogamy, I think our generation has kind of clung to this idea of like, well, if it's not marriage and monogamy, then the other option is all no strings attached, um, no emotional connection, keeping it casual, yeah, not, not putting any labels people, on we it. Get that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, right? That that it's like it's like a black and white, it's like a binary. And that right? was a classic so error that Tristan Terramino made. In, in her mm, book, where she yes. cast Solipoly right. that way. I think that yes. was a big oversight. It was a great book, but it, that was an yes. oversight. Yeah. 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 So I think that's what I see in our generation still is like, yes, we've accepted that, like, we don't have to be seeking monogamy or seeking marriage or seeking someone to have kids with necessarily, but that means that we have to be constantly keeping everybody out here, you know, like at arm's length. That means we can't. Uh, you know, we can't express care for someone because if we do express care for someone, that's going to mean that they're going to want exclusivity and to get married and to hop on the escalator. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's what I see. I, I like to believe that maybe the next generation after ours will take it a step further and be more willing to embrace, you know, the full variety, the full spectrum of options that are available. But I feel like we're not quite there yet. Jason, what's your, you haven't weighed in on this yet. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, I think that, um, it, I think it's it's so hard when comparing generations to each other, just because it's hard to find anyone who has enough perspective, uh, you know, outside yeah. of their own social. And we're circles. all kind of a circle of weirdos here, so yeah. right, right. <laughs> um, but I I do feel like if I look at my way of of analyzing that, rather than just looking at the way that my peers talk, is to look at things like what are the types of relationship models we see in TV programs and in movies that are marketed toward this generation, you know, toward, toward my generation and people even younger than me and kind of what's hot, what's cool, what are people watching, what's the content of tabloid headlines even, right? That just seeing kind of what things are still counted as scandalous, I think can mm -hmm. be an interesting marker of kind of what is also normal. Uh, to look at it in contrast like that. Um, and I think that it, it was funny when Emily was bringing up that thing of she's like, no, I don't think people think it's weird that we would have this, you know, we're exes, but we're still very close. And Dedeker and I were both like, no, people think that's super weird. 
that it, it just uh, depends kind of what you see and what people say to you. But I do mm-hmm. think that even if we're going from that place, like Dedeker said, where it's like n- being able to have other options than just getting married and having kids and, and living together, that those things are not quite like there's less fear. I think of being sort of the old maid of like, Oh, well, your life has no meaning if you don't do those things. I think oh, that's... Yeah. My, my goal in life is to be a crotchety old bitch. So. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Simply by continuing to exist, I'm achieving my goal. But yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That I think that stigma is definitely less um, amongst my peers that there's, mm-hmm. it's still there though. And I think that definitely there's still an assumption of monogamy and there's still an assumption that your romantic partner is going to be more important to you than any of your friends or, you know, anything like that, except for like maybe your kids and maybe your parents. Um, But I think it's like, we're a step enough that direction that then for people who are outside of that, doing things like polyamory or just not cohabiting while they're in a monogamous relationship, it's like less of a jump. So it's still Mm -hmm. outside of the normal, but it doesn't feel quite so far away. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I, I won't, that, that's kind of, I guess what I'd like to offer is just that maybe we're looking too far ahead to see where the difference is. And it's actually more just that that's not as big a jump away from what's normal as it used to be. Yeah. Well, all social norms are always an evolution. They've changed mm-hmm. very, very much over the centuries. Um, but, um, speaking to you from the future. I am your future. You realize this. Um, One thing that uh, not a lot of people I've found um, who talk about unconventional relationship choices who are in their 20s and 30s think about is the long-term implications of what that means for the infrastructure of your life as you age. Um, If you Mm. are in your 50s, 60s, 70s and are not married and have never um, combined the infrastructure of your life with somebody, and especially if you don't have children, um, wow, if you end up ill or disabled or otherwise unable to care for yourself, you are fucked. Um, unless you are extremely wealthy. Uh, this society is really set up to uh, support a lot of people who, um, who, where it's assumed that you will have a life partner and all the joined infrastructure that goes along with that. And that has actually supported, inhibited the um, adoption of infrastructure, at least in the United States and in many other countries, that would um, accord support and, uh, support and um, assistance to individuals. Um, right. You use the rationale that you're coupled up so your partner's gonna take care of you, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. not necessarily so. This is something that I think about very much. Um, you know, it mm. is, uh, you know, I've chosen to not, you know, entwine the infrastructure of my life with my partners. And I'm like, hmm, what's that gonna look like when I'm in my 70s or 80s? unless some significant things change about this, the social and political and financial landscape in this country, that's, I'm not looking forward to that. That's going to suck. Yeah. So you guys got to make it all better for me. All right. <laughs> all right. We're on. Because <laughs> yeah. then you'll be making it better for you too. Uh, but couple right. centrism has crippled the development of a lot of social infrastructure in this country. My mom has been single for like, I don't know, 20 years. And and really like doesn't operate under the assumption that she needs a mate. I, I am an only child, so I get that perhaps that burden would fall on me, but it's so like not been in our daily talk about like what the future holds and stuff. I mean, my grandmother died like, you know, and she was totally fine, 100%, like very functioning directly before that. So maybe I'm coming at it with that mindset, but but it is an interesting idea, like how how self, uh, you know, how okay can you be 100% by yourself without anyone else uh, until you're not. And obviously, obviously not everyone has that luxury because of finances or because of health or whatever. Um, so it is something to think about. I don't know, yeah. but, but I, I feel as though I see the rise of, of mothers and of families being single parented. And so that is just a norm more, perhaps, than it once was. So I don't know yeah. what that means. I hope. Well, it's, an, it's a social norm 
But the yeah. infrastructure has not caught up with that. For instance, sure. say if if my dear friend Emily and I, uh, not you, Emily, different Emily, um, say we <laughs> wanted to eventually buy a house together, um, because you know we consider each other to be you know core partners to each other. And what if we wanted to do that? If we weren't married, it would be almost impossible for us to get a mortgage. To get a mortgage mm. together. Unless we formed an LLC and bought the house through an LLC, and that would be an entirely different tax yeah. landscape for that. Right. Uh, well, yeah. thankfully, the three of us have done that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but but not but not for like buying home buying purposes. Not. For, I know, but no. just know. in case. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot harder to qualify for a mortgage if you are, it, you know, if you aren't a very wealthy person, if you aren't married. If you are married, mm. you automatically get better consideration. You're considered a better lending risk. And that's ironic because I, I love my former spouse dearly. But, oh, my goodness, the way he managed money. Um, <laughs> but we, we qualified for a mortgage like that largely because we were married. And um, mm. it, it didn't take into consideration his spending habits versus mine. Yeah. Well, and it, this yeah. also shows up in... Um, health insurance premiums this it kind of changed Gosh, with yeah. obamacare but it's probably heading back this direction but like yeah. it, huge difference in terms of you know the statistical health risks associated with not being married doesn't take into account whether you you're not married by choice rather than just that you couldn't or that yeah. you did wrap everything up in that one relationship that then ended or, you know, there's different ways it can look and the statistics don't take any of that into consideration when calculating healthcare premiums and things like that. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to turn this all into like, you know, massive economic commentary, but just to say that the, the things that make up the relationship escalator, they affect every aspect of life in society and they have stunning consequences. And I, I mean, for instance, I, I personally know several people who have gotten married or stayed in marriages that they would have rather left because of the health insurance, mm -hmm. right. or because of the housing. It's really tough. Yeah. Yeah, definitely something to be aware of in the coming years for everyone involved. Yeah. Not only those of us who are currently practicing solo polyamory, but also our children and et cetera, et cetera, if those yeah, are going to happen in our lives. But yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, that's its own social and economic issue, but it does come down to a lot of the underpinning of that is that we're assumed that an escalator relationship will provide intrinsic infrastructure for people. Yes. Ain't necessarily so, and that certainly varies by race, uh, by country, um, by other demographics too. Not a level playing field, but but we still make a lot of those assumptions. And it's not just you and me making those assumptions. It's it's the actu actuaries at insurance companies, and it's legislators, mm -hmm. right. and <laughs> hospital administrators, right. and all sorts mm -hmm. of people. Yeah. 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 Right. You weren't expecting that can of worms, were you? <laughs> <laughs> No, thank you well, for no, sharing I think all that. I, yeah. No, I really appreciate you bringing that up because it is such a huge, huge intrinsic part of how we function in the States. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that so much of our infrastructure, honestly, still kind of does harken back to this time, you know, when, for instance, specifically as a woman, your only way of having any kind of stability was to get a husband, mm -hmm. you know, um, where like the nuclear family unit was held up as the only infrastructure that you can really have in your life. And even though we like to believe that we are so progressive now, like that is, that's just the fact that the systems that we have to live with and work with are still very much based in that. Mm -hmm. So no, it's, it's a very important thing for people to think about and to acknowledge at the very least. And there has Absolutely. been a lot of progress and there's good. And, mm -hmm. and here's the thing. And I tell people that I write about unconventional relationships a lot of times they think I'm talking about same-sex marriage. It's like, mm. well, actually, right. that's kind of all about <laughs> jumping on the escalator. It's but you know, scratching the surface. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. It, but it does matter, though, because the thing is, okay, if you're going to have um, basically institutionalized couple privilege, at least don't make it discriminatory based on sexual orientation. Yeah. But legal marriage right. is, in fact, institutionalized couple privilege. Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And yeah. I'm not True. saying legal marriage True. is necessarily a bad thing. I just wish that other people were not excluded from the benefits that are only right. approachable through legal marriage. Absolutely. Right. Definitely. Yeah. So, 
<laughs> um, let's pivot a little bit again. Okay. This is something that the three of us have talked about uh, to various people that we've interviewed recently and just on our own. We have kind of created ourselves a support group within our community, our Patreon community. Um, but support groups are a big thing, are a big thing for all of us who do non-traditional relationships. It's incredibly important. Um, but we wanted to ask kind of what are some of the best support networks out there that you've found and what makes them so great, what makes them so positive, um, and what are things that can make support networks better and stronger? Um, we wanted to talk about inclusivity as well, because that is a big thing. Mm. I think that's super important. Um, not just that like your support look group looks super homogenous and that it's all the same person over and over again, but that it includes a lot of different types of people within that support group. Is that how important is that? Mm. Because I know we think oh, it, it is it, very it's, important. It's huge because, like I said, it's yes. really difficult to um, undo all the social conditioning that goes along with the relationship escalator. And it's not just for people who are polyamorous, for people who um, prefer to, you know, solohood or who are asexual or aromantic, you know, or other ways of stepping off the escalator. Um it's kind of scary to think that you're the only one doing this and that means you must be doing it wrong, right? Um, it, this, it just triggers all sorts of insecurities because these relationships are where we are most emotionally vulnerable and it always helps to see other people who have done it. Um, I grew up before the internet happened and um, I remember what it was like to only really be able to connect with people that I could meet with. And it was, um, that was very, very limiting. Plus it was New Jersey in the 1980s. <laughs> Wake me up when Reagan is no longer president, please. And, um, uh, and but the, the people that I did have in my life before the internet happened, um, who um, we clicked with on a variety of levels and could have very open and frank conversations, even if we were very different, um, that helped a lot. Uh, one thing that I've learned from my father that I, I've never forgotten is um, if you only you know talk to people who think just like you, you won't learn a damn thing. Uh, so I've always tried to uh, to reach out. So I think it helps to have friends who represent a variety of perspectives, demographics, and and to be a good friend to them and to realize that that you are going to have differences and see things differently, and that's okay. It takes a lot of the fear out of difference. Um, but also the internet is a wonderful thing because when I first decided, um, you know, back in the, uh, you know, around 2000 or so, uh, yeah, yeah, can I just admit that this monogamy thing doesn't work for me? And I'd already been married for you know, about a decade at that point, And it's like, uh, not really working. Um, there was this thing called Alta Vista. Do you remember Alta Vista? I do. Pre-Google. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I do. <laughs> I remember older than the two of us. Yeah. I, I did a lot of complicated search queries in Alta Vista, <laughs> and then suddenly I saw this word polyamory. I'm like, what's that? And a word is a powerful thing. Um, when anybody sees a word that they don't understand, um, it typically means that that's something they can Google now. And it's a lot easier than it used to be. And you can mm -hmm. instantly start to find resources. They won't necessarily all be good resources. Uh, but at least it's a starting point for research and a conversation. Um, so I tend to think that a combination of cultivating uh, personal friendships and online community and, and local poly groups are great. I can't emphasize how grateful I am for the Boulder Polyamory Meetup, which my friend Jesse, uh, Jesse Glasscock organizes. You guys, if you want to understand what makes a good poly group, you should talk to Jesse. Um, she's been doing this mm -hmm. for about 10 years and it's weekly and it's packed every week, you know, uh, because nice. uh, for people who are regulars, and for people who are just curious, because it's a good place to have the discussion, and she has a good blend of, of um, structuring the discussion and and having you know free and open communication. Um, uh, so those elements, personal friendships, local community, and finding online community, I think are all essential. But especially in polyamory, don't just approach community as a dating pool. That's the mistake that a lot of people yes. make. Um, you want to have poly acquaintances and friends and mentors so that you can observe their experience and learn from it. Um, uh, too often people just think, well, 
I want to you know, meet poly people so I can have people to date. That's generally the wrong way to go about it. Um, right. And in fact, there's several people come to the Boulder Poly meetup who aren't poly, um, who might be swingers or they might be monogamous, but they just enjoy having this level of conversations about relationships that they don't often get to have in person in a lot of other places. So, um, right. yeah, and also, too, um, it helps for a lot of reasons to be out about being poly. Uh, it, being poly in particular, I've found, um, for several reasons. Um, you know, the whole reason why same-sex marriage came about is because a lot of people were brave enough to say, yeah, I'm gay, and no big deal. <laughs> and um, it, the more people knew people who were gay, the less weird it became. And the, the, right. that built political support eventually for same-sex marriage by normalizing it. But also, um, on a personal level, uh, that normalization means that your friends can support you through relationship issues, even if they might not necessarily be polyamorous themselves, because they won't be automatically prejudiced against anything except monogamy. Uh, growing up, that was not the case for me. Hopefully that will be more the case for you because people have at least generally heard the word and know that it's a valid option. Yeah, I definitely feel like that is something that I at least notice in my own life is that I, I do think compared to other generations that I have more of a wealth of friends around me who maybe they themselves identify more monogamously, but they're still able to be supportive, even just in the you know, in the very simple way of just being willing to ask about all of my partners, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, not just one particular person or things like that. And I, I think, again, as we already said, so hard to be able to like get a true, you know, litmus test of people outside our own little bubble. But yeah. I do like to think that at least in our generation that we have more access to that for sure mm -hmm. of people who are at least, like you said, know the term, aren't automatically scared off by it, don't automatically make it about themselves as like a threatening thing to themselves and can just, yeah, can just be there and be supportive. Yeah. yeah. And, and are, co are comfortable with you in social situations. That matters a lot too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Right. It, it, like I said, the social norms are, they're kind of the Velcro. So people know how to interact with each other and, the, you know, all these little hooks that you can grab into. And that, that um, universe of hooks is expanding for a lot of people. Their, co their comfort zone has gotten broader. And I'm, I'm really happy with that. So Amy, can you tell our listeners where they can find more of your stuff? And also, please tell us about the special discount that you have for multi-amory listeners specifically. Yeah, okay. So stepping off the relationship escalator, um, you can find out all the information at offescalator.com. And uh, it's available as uh, on Amazon as a print book and as an ebook. But if you want to get the really cool version, buy it through offescalator.com. First of all, because I can do things like cool special discounts there that I can't really do on Amazon. And uh, second, because I'll send you a signed copy. And how cool is that? Uh, so the discount is go to offescalator.com. And when you purchase the book, use the discount called multi multi and uh, you will get a 20% discount off of that for a signed copy mailed to you personally that may or may not have fur from a black cat on it. <laughs> it consider it a bonus, I guess, Absolutely. unless you're allergic. Yeah, if, you, if you're allergic, but... you might want to send me a note about that. I'll make sure I pull it out of my box. <laughs> no, what's up, um, yeah, um, and also that, you know, like I said, this is the first in a series of books. I meant to have at least the second book out right now, but, you know, life. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the second book that I'm uh, in the process of finishing now is, is called How Does That Work? And it's answers to 12 common questions that people get about unconventional relationships. Um, and again, it's based on the research I've, I've done previously, plus some additional surveys that I'm doing now. For most of those questions in that book, I'm going to be doing on offescalator.com some short surveys to gather some additional and updated information, since my original information is about four years old now. And then after that um, is off the escalator in the closet, which is how people navigate decisions about being out or in the closet about their relationships and how to make the world a friendlier and safer place for all kinds of relationships great excellent well that's so exciting it's so exciting that you have all these projects coming down the line and um yeah definitely excited to see what you'll have next i'm sure when your next books come out we'll probably have you back on the show sure. um so our listeners can look forward to that um 
yeah, I feel like I learned a lot today. And thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom. Oh, well, thank, thank you for being my 20 and 30 something uh, focus group here. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, uh, you know what? There's, o- there's only one of us who's still in their 20s mm. for about another week or so, actually. My birthday is next week. Rock oh, on. dear God. And then 30, here I come. Yikes. Uh, that's right. it, it just keeps getting better. And, and listen, as soon as you hit 40, you officially get to not give a fuck anymore. <laughs> oh, I thought I got that at 30. No, no you don't even Once I know 30, yet. I was operating this whole time thinking that I didn't get to give a fuck. No, you, you don't <laughs> even know just... yet. Just <laughs> hang on. Awesome. Yeah, well, just thank to you. More to I guess. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, thank so much, thanks Amy. very much for having me here. I really appreciate your work. And Dedeker, you did a great job with your book. Well done. Oh, geez. Oh, gosh. Oh, I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting the compliments. Oh, I don't even know how to take it. Gosh, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so that much great. to Amy. Yeah, that was awesome. Uh, I feel like I learned a lot. Um, I mean, I think all of us did. She's also just really cool Definitely. to hear her talk about all this stuff. She has so much experience writing about it and talking to people about it and interviewing people mm-hmm. about it that that really shows in just how easily she can talk about it. Um, if you out there have any questions or comments that you would like played on our show in the future, you can call us at 678-MULTI05 and leave us a voicemail there, or you can send us an audio message at the Multiamory Facebook page. You can also email us at info at or send us a message on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. To support our show and join our private Facebook community, go to patreon.com slash multiamory. Multiamory is created and produced by Dedeker Winston, Emily Matlack, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com.